Today is our annual Thanksgiving service. This service has become a tradition in our church. I know for many of you, this is one of your favorite services of the year. Many have told me it's the favorite service of the year because of the traditions that have developed. We'll spend the afternoon today sharing with one another what, what God has done over the past year and maybe many years as we see God doing this glorious work in our lives, bringing things together. It's always a, a wonderful, joy-filled time to just talk about God's work and, and, and his good kindness to us. That makes a, a, a favorite for many. But maybe you're here this morning and you do not feel joyful. Maybe you're here this morning and you're in the middle of a very difficult time. It's been a difficult year. There's sorrow that has enveloped you. There's, there's hardships that, that are mounting in your life. And, and here you are surrounded by a bunch of happy people. And you don't feel happy. That can be painful, I know. Maybe you are, have been dreading this service instead of anticipating this service. Maybe you've already determined that I am skipping this afternoon because it is the last thing I want to be part of. I do not want to hear a bunch of people telling you how good their life is when they know nothing about my life. Sure, you, you might be sitting here this morning with your church face on. We all have a very good church face. We know how to put that face down, it drops in front of us, and nobody knows the inner turmoil that's going on. But you've determined you are certainly not going to put yourself through this afternoon service. But before you run away today, please listen carefully to our psalm this morning. God has something specifically to say to those of you who are living through the great pains that life brings. Providentially, God has brought us to a psalm that is filled with extreme emotional pain and anguish this morning. Ours is not a happy psalm today. In fact, honestly, when I understood the tone of this psalm this week as I started studying and really comprehended the tone, I considered making this one of those rare times where I set my schedule aside and, and go somewhere else. Because this psalm did not seem to fit at all with the tone of our service. But then I changed my mind. I thought maybe we needed more upbeat, pleasant text, but I changed my mind. I figured if God had providentially brought us to this psalm this morning, there's a reason for it. There must be a lesson for our church, or at least for some of our church members, in the psalm this morning. Our psalm this morning, as you can see, is Psalm 79. It's the one we come to in our series through the third book of the Psalter. We've been working our way through these psalms over the last weeks. And, and Psalm 79 is one of the lament psalms. I want to give us a definition for lament. We can think of a lament this way. A lament, or often I should say we think of lament this way. We think of it as a cry of pain. A, a, a cry of despair as one goes through the agony of life. That, that's the common way of thinking of lament, that, that it is just cry of emotional agony because of things of life. Now, if you were in my Sunday school class last January, we started it, January, February, March, the first quarter of this year, we studied lament. And, and if you were in that Sunday school class, hopefully you still remember that a biblical lament is more than this. It's not less than this. 
Because, yes, there is a cry of pain, but biblical lament is, is more than just a cry of pain. Yet it's certainly not less. Now, I mentioned other times, I, I know I have, one of the places where I fear we fail in, in our current style of worship, in, in at least the Western world. You know, I'm talking much broader than the fact we have a style of worship where we sing hymns. I'm going further back. For the last couple hundred years in Western church history, one of the places I fear we've, we've failed is in our consistent upbeat tone to our music. As I've defined music before, music is a, a language of emotion. It is, it's can, it's to give us a vocabulary to be able to express emotion. Yet, yet the music that, that fills our hymn books and, and our services, it, it provides a very limited vocabulary. Now, there should be some limit because we're worshiping God. Not all language of music is, is appropriate for worshiping a holy God, a majestic God. Yet, our vocabulary that we have in our hymns really limits us when it comes to trying to express sorrow or pain. It, our music is nearly all joyous in tone. It, it's, it, it communicates gladness. The result is that, that I think our music over the last couple hundred years has helped teach us that the proper way to come to church is to put on a happy face. I talked about that mask that we have in place. Even if our lives are filled with sorrow and pain, we think the proper way to come to worship is to drop that mask in front and be a happy place. Well, frankly, I believe that's wrong for a couple of reasons. For one thing, one of the Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt not lie. Right? It's the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not lie. Well, feigning happiness when we're not is essentially telling a lie. We are communicating something that is not truthful. The church is the last place that we should, even inadvertently, teach people to act untruthfully, is it not? A second reason I believe it's wrong for us to put on a happy face all the time with our music is that the Psalms do not do that. In fact, re repeating a point I made continually in my Lament Sunday School class, better than a third of the psalms that we have in the Psalter are lament psalms. Laments are, I said, at least an expression of pain and despair. They're a cry of agony. They are expressions of the sorrows that come with life. Remember, the psalms are the inspired songs that God gave Israel. This is music. Now, yes, we only have the, the lyrics left. The lyrics are much easier to translate into other languages than music carries forward, especially after you translate it. But these are the inspired songs that God gave his chosen people to utilize in their worship. God gave his people a language which they could use to express their painful emotions, not just their joyous emotions. At the same time, let's not forget, I, I mentioned biblical lament is not only a cry of pain or despair. Music teaches. In fact, music probably, as I've said multiple times, even now in this series, probably teaches more than words. You're more apt to go home with, with one of the songs stuck in your mind than you're apt to 
go home with one of the phrases I preach stuck in your mind. I, I hope that the phrases penetrate and, and teach eventually, but music teaches. God used lament psalms to teach his chosen people how they are to deal with pain and despair. Most importantly, God continues to teach us how we are to deal with pain and despair. Our psalm this morning certainly has much to teach us. And we'll discover what it has to teach us here with dealing pain and despair, and that we'll find what is teaching is connected to this commitment that we are to have to express thanksgiving to God. We are to have a commitment to thank our God. And this psalm teaches us how to connect pain and despair to that commitment. I think this morning it will prove most helpful for us to work our way through the psalm before we step back and ask ourselves, what is it teaching us? What is the lesson? What is the key lesson? Because the, the key lesson, the main lesson that comes out of this psalm comes out of the details of the historical circumstances that, that produced the pain and despair it's dealing with. So we need to understand those details. We need to understand the pain and despair that's being communicated here to understand the lesson of teaching. Those details begin with what I'm calling the devastating experience in the first four verses. The devastating experiences. Let's read these verses, the, the first four verses, so we can understand the experience here that the psalmist is dealing with in this song of lament. O oh God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the dead bodies of your servants for food to the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your godly ones to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water round about Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and derision to those around us. These are not happy verses. Have you ever thought about how many of our psalms, or I mean, not, how many of our hymns are written as prayers to God? Oftentimes, our music is really words dressed as prayers to God. The, the first song that Jerry played during our meditation time this morning started out with the words, Oh, send thy spirit, Lord, now unto me. The song was, Break Thou the Bread of Life, but it's written as a prayer. The song is praying to God. Many of our songs do that. can't remember now off the top of my head, but I noticed as we were singing one of our other songs that we sang, this from second verse onward, was a prayer to God. Well, that's what our psalm is doing. It's a song that is a prayer to God. The psalmist is addressing God in, in fervent prayer because Jerusalem has been destroyed. Many of your Bibles, I'm sure, have a, a, a heading over the psalm that the, the translators, or at least the printers, have put there. And in the New American Standard, the heading is, A Lament Over the Destruction of Jerusalem, and prayer for help. The, this psalm appears as if it was written right after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. After a long siege, the Babylonians broke through the walls of the city and ransacked it. it it's hard to say which aspect 
of the ransacking here shook the psalmist more as you read these verses. Many people were violently killed. He, there were so many that were violently killed, he used the metaphor of pouring out water as, as a metaphor to how their blood was poured all over the city. He was appalled. There are so many dead bodies laying around that there was no way to bury them all. Now birds and animals are feasting on them. And indignation that, that, that is beyond his comprehension. That, that these bodies would not receive even a, a, a burial. These are the people of God. At the same time, God's temple was defiled. The place where God is worshipped was defiled. Andy talked about when that's repeated several hundred years later in his class this morning. We've talked about in 70 AD, or actually, no, earlier than that, the Maccabeans, when they, it it was again defiled. The invaders here, the Babylonians in this case, they had no respect for the land. They had no respect for the people. They had no respect for the temple. Nothing was sacred from their perspective. And then to add insult to injury, all the nations that were surrounding Israel were laughing. Israel had become a laughing stock to all of their enemies. Now, at the beginning of October, we looked at the same event from the, through the lens of Psalm 74. And at that time, I referenced 9-11. The the event of September 11th is probably the closest most of us can come in our lives to experiencing sudden, violent devastation. Yet, even as horrific as the events were on on 9-11, they are not really even a close parallel to the devastating experience that the psalmist here is describing. The, The reason I say that is because September 11th, none of us were directly involved. Yet all of us can remember the the moment, right, that the towers fell. But we weren't directly involved, at least to my knowledge. None of us were walking on the streets of New York that day. None of us stumbled around the rubble and wondered if there were dead bodies underneath that rubble. None of us wondered if any of those bodies were our friends or our family. And yet the psalmist here isn't wondering. He's living it. Friends and families, bodies are all over the city. We need to recognize there's a large gap between our experience and this incredible despair and anguish that the psalmist is understanding. We need to recognize this gap so that we can mentally bridge it. This is despair to the extreme. Misery beyond misery. We also need to look at one additional item. Look carefully at verse 2. I've I've mentioned this item a couple times. I want to zoom in on it a little bit. Look in verse 2. Do you see where the psalmist states that these are the the dead bodies of your servants? This is the flesh of your godly ones. Those yours had special meaning to the psalmist. The the infidels, the, the pagans, the heathens, the Babylonians, they had destroyed God's covenant people. Verse 1. This was God's inheritance. This was God's temple. There there was nothing about the fact that God had judged his people that that surprised the psalmist. All the way back in Deuteronomy, 
28, verse 52, God had warned if the people turned from him, he would bring judgment upon them. So the psalmist isn't surprised that God judged his people, but the psalmist is astounded by the fact that God used these infidels, these wicked, wicked, wicked Babylonians to do it. Even when God had predicted that beforehand to the prophet Habakkuk, Habakkuk couldn't wrap his mind around the idea. Living through it, the psalmist is stumped that it has happened. As he stumbles through the rubble with the other defeated survivors, he cannot comprehend how God could let this happen. Can you begin to feel the emotional agony? Can you glimpse the pain? Thankfully, we have not lived through such extreme experiences in our lives. At least, as far as I know, none of us have. Yet all of us have lived through painful experiences. The language of pain that our psalmist uses here as he expresses himself to God can teach us how to express our own pain. And that means what he learns from his experience of despair can teach us when we find ourselves despairing. Let's move on from the devastating experience to the plea, as I'm calling verses 5 through 12, the plea. Reading at verse 5. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath upon the nations which do not know you, and upon the kingdoms which do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember the iniquities of our forefathers against us. Let your compassion come quickly to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of your name. And deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight vengeance for the blood of your servants which has been shed. Let the groaning of the prisoner come before you. According to the greatness of your power, preserve those who are doomed to die. In return to our neighbors sevenfold, into their bosom the reproach with which they have reproached you, O Lord. Notice here how the plea begins there in verse 5. The cry, how long, O Lord? This is a cry of distress. It's also a cry of confidence. One only asks how long when there's an expectation that there will be an end. Think about how many car rides we've had with young children who are asking, how much longer before we get there? There is a cry of distress in there, isn't there? I am so tired of sitting in this seat. But there's also confidence that this experience will end. This trip has a terminal point. We will get to Grandpa's house eventually and Grandma's house. In this case, the cry is an implicit request as to where is the end of the Lord's anger. How long will the people have to suffer under God's judgment until they have satisfied his wrath? 
There's really three components to the plea in this verse. Could even say there's three pleas wrapped into this plea. First, there's a concern that the nations that have conquered Israel will, will feel God's wrath as well. The nations were led by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were definitely the conquerors, but Babylon did not send their entire army most the time. They had all kinds of nations that were subjugated under them, and they just picked up troops as they went to where they were going to attack. So most of the, the people were really surrounding nations that attacked Israel at this time. These were pagan nations. These were nations that, that reveled in false gods and that denied the true God. And they thought nothing of crushing God's people. Remember, God had called Israel his own. We just talked about that. So just like the psalmist recognized that Israel's judgments are aligned with God's covenant promises, he also remembers that God's covenant included curses upon those who did evil to God's people. God, when will you bring your covenant curses down upon those who have clearly demonstrated their great de deserving of that? They have harmed your people, God. Bring your curses. The Babylonians and the surrounding nations certainly fit those who, who deserve God's curses. So it called for God to, to pour out his wrath upon them using the, the same words, actually, that he used in verse 3 for the way the, the nations treated the blood of the people. They poured out the blood of God's people. God, pour out your wrath. That's the first plea. Second, within the plea, there's, there's a concern for forgiveness. There's a request for forgiveness. Israel's punishment was just. The nation had sinned. Going back to their forefathers, the psalmist admits there in verse 8. But notice in verse 9, he also includes our sins. We can go all the way back to our forefathers. They've sinned. And right up to the current generation, we've sinned. Past and present generations have combined to sin against God. Yet, God is a compassionate, forgiving God. We lose the emphasis in our English here in the Hebrew, the way it's translated. In the second line of verse 8, we translate it, let your compassion come quickly. We, we miss the emphasis of the Hebrew. The Hebrew has the very first word as hurry. Hurry. We translate it there at the end quickly, but hurry God. Hurry. Bring your compassions. Again, we translate it singular, but... The King James Version does a better job. The King James Version translates the plural. Your tender mercies. This is a one-time thing for God. Bring, bring, bring it over and over, God. Your mercies, your compassion. Hurry with these things to us. God alone can provide salvation and it will arrive when God forgives in his mercies. Which brings out the third concern. The third plea, if you will. The, the reason that the psalmist wants God to pour out his wrath on the nation and the reason he wants God to show his compassionate forgiveness is because God's name is at stake. God's name is at stake. God has staked his name to Israel. God's honor is tied up with Israel's destiny. 
as God brings vengeance here upon the nations for their destruction, as God's power and might is displayed through that, his glory will shine. As God forgives Israel, he wants the nation to stand in awe of his mercy because then his name, his glory will shine. In the Exodus, if you go all the way back to the Exodus when God brought Israel out of Egypt, there's several references to, to God hearing the Israelites groaning in their slavery, in their agony, in their pain. Now the prayer is, God, hear the groaning of your people again. Hear their groaning once more as they're being taken into exile. Only God can preserve them. Only God can avenge them. Only God can save them. The psalmist's idea is that God, please do that. His plea is that God will do that in full. Now, before we move on to the last verse, I, I want us to consider these three components, the, these three pleas, if you will, in this section. I, I, I would suspect that, that we don't have to look too hard in our own prayers to find examples of the sentiment of that first concern. The first concern was that the, the oppressors would get their just due, that, that God would pour out his wrath on those that were against Israel. He wanted God to punish the Babylonians. Well, I doubt that we have to look real hard in our own prayers, examine them too carefully before we find examples where we also want God to bring justice on those who do us wrong. We want God to remember that, that we're his children, that, that he should clearly show that he's on our side. And one way we certainly want him to do that is by flipping the apparent success of those who are against us. Think of your own prayers. How many times have you asked God to right a wrong for you? We don't have to search real hard for that. We probably don't have to search too hard to find the second component in our prayers either. A request for forgiveness. Intellectually, in our minds, I'm saying we, we probably understand that we deserve far worse than we've ever received from God. I think intellectually we, we get that. We, we are, after all, can look back at our lives. At some point in our life, we were all God deniers, Christ rejectors. We, we were, right? Nod your head, yep, yep, we were. Intellectually, we know this. The Bible tells us this. And if you know your history at all, that's who we were. We also understand we are sinners. So we deserve the consequence of sin. I mean, the ultimate consequence is eternal damnation, right? We know that. We know that sin means we should spend eternity in hell. But assuming that somewhere along the way we've accepted Christ as our Savior, that we know that, that God sent his own son to die for us instead of, of letting us have to suffer what we deserve, he let his son suffer what we deserve instead. And if we accept that in faith... We know that we're now his children. By the way, if you've never done that, talk to me after the service. If you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, talk to me. Because if you haven't accepted Jesus as your Savior, you still deserve eternal damnation. You have no other escape from it. Send me an email. They put that up on the screen. 
Let me show you how you can escape what you deserve. Now, assuming we've done that, we know that we're God's children. We've accepted Jesus' payment in our place. We are now God's children. So even though intellectually we admit we're sinners, we rightly, I'll say, correctly, relish our new position before God. The, the problem is we get so comfortable in our new position that, that we don't like it. We don't like it at all when God reminds us that for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. Hebrews 12, 6. We don't like that. We don't like the correction that God brings into our lives because of ongoing sin. And, and we very quickly cry out for forgiveness. We want God to hurry to us with his mercies again. Bring those compassions. Not corrective pain. Again, I think our prayers frequently re reflect this type of a plea. Where our prayers are, are likely lacking is in the third component, the third type of plea, the third aspect. How hard do we have to look in our prayers to find any indication that our pleas for justice or our pleas for forgiveness are driven by a concern for God's name? Can we find any indication within our prayers that we are more concerned about God's honor than our comfort? We surely groan, but we do, do we ever groan because we're concerned that God's name is being ridiculed by the people around us? We have considered the plea of our psalm, but there, there is one more verse here. A verse that explicitly expresses the reason the psalmist wants God to act on his plea. The motivation, verse 13, the motivation. So we, your people, and the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. To all generations we will tell of your praise. So we, your people, and the sheep of your pasture... The circumstances have not changed. Israel remains God's people. The circumstances have not changed who the people are one bit. The devastation, the destruction, the death, these have not erased God's promises to his people. There is hope in that core reality of who they are. So why do the people of God want God to save them and punish the other nations? So that they would have more reasons to thank God and praise God. They could tell what God has done. They could tell now what God has done. And for generation after generation, they could pass it on to the future generation. Here's what God has done so that generation after generation will combine in the praise of God. Bad things, devastating things certainly happen, don't they? How many of you have experienced bad things in your life? Devastating things. The question that, that these things raise in our minds is, is whether these bad things are under the control of a good God. After all, why would a good God allow bad things, even horrible things, to occur? We spent a lot of time discussing this 
last year in our book club when we went through the book Providence. This was one of the main topics we discussed over and over. There, there are really three possibilities that are three possible answers that we can give to the intellectual dilemma that bad things bring. The question, can a good God allow bad things in our life? There's really only three options. Because bad things do occur. We all acknowledge that, right? We've experienced it. We see it. Bad things happen. So we could posit that, that there is no God after all. That these bad things are just the result of random chance. That, that means that, that things just happen. It's the luck of the draw, whether or not they happen to us. Be, because really, life is truly meaningless. There is no control over anything. All we can do is keep our fingers crossed and hope in random chance that, that it doesn't strike our way. Really, that answer leaves no possibility of hope at all. Another possibility is we could posit that, that bad things happen because there's an evil being that's plotting these things against us. He's out to harm us. And any particular bad thing that happens means that this evil being had victory in this cosmic battle between a good being and a bad being. We might cross our fingers again and hope that, well, the good wins over the evil in the end. But the fact that there's so much evil in the world, that seems like kind of foolish hope to me. From everything I can see, it would appear that evil, maybe he's gaining ground if nothing else. In that, So if there's a cosmic battle going on, I really have no reason to think a good being is going to win out in the end when evil's gaining the upper hand. This answer, if we take it, leads to depression at best, if we think too hard. Really, the, the only hope that we have possible in, in this life is, is to just numb ourselves so much that we don't think too hard. Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die. The good news is that there is a third possibility. There is a third possibility. That possibility is that there is a good God under whose control these bad things are allowed. A good God who says that all trials, no matter how horrendous they may seem, no matter how painful they are, serve an ultimate plan. A plan that he is controlling. A plan that he assures us will ultimately make us Perfect and complete, James 1, 2 through 4. A God who says that all things work, that he works all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1, 11, and so on. Really, we could pile up scripture after scripture that says God controls all things that happen for his good purpose. He also tells us that, that we should not be surprised if we do not understand how these things will play into his good plan. After all, he says that his ways are not our ways, Isaiah 55, 8. Still, we can stand on the promise that he causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Here alone lies hope. A good God is controlling the most awful things that happen. A good God has promised that he is doing this for our ultimate good. And, and should we ever doubt whether he is on our side, that he's trying to do this for all, our ultimate good, 
we can remember that a good God has demonstrated he is for us because he sent his own son to be our savior. So let me ask you, when you're going through devastating times, are you confident that God is in control? If so, are you motivated then look within the devastation, to look within all the pain and agony, to look for further reasons to praise God? Are you eager for God to work in a mighty way within, within your pain so that you'll have something that you can tell a future generation about the wonder-working God you know? Is God your burden for more and more, or is it your burden for more and more praise to accumulate from God's people? For it to happen generation after generation. One commentator said there's really only three tones we can take when we address God. And we see all three of these tones in this psalm. One tone is the voice of sighs, the voice of groans, as we address God in pain and agony. We certainly see that in this psalm. The second tone we can take with God is the tone of rebellion. God, I'm shaking my fist at you and I will never bow before you. Well, we see that in all the taunts of the nations around Israel, the Babylonians. And the third tone is the tone of praise. The, the ultimate prayer of the psalmist here is that God would answer the first two, the groans and the taunts, so strongly that the only tone left is the tone of praise. We've looked at this motivation given here in this final verse that, that praise would be that which stands in the end. Now it's the time for us to step back and, and consider what is the lesson. Re remember our psalmist is living through nearly unimaginable devastation. Yet he's ended on this hopeful note. A note anticipating that, that God is going to receive praise forever and ever from his faithful people. Nothing's changed in the circumstances. The dead bodies are still piled everywhere he can look. The, the stones are still stained with blood. The survivors are still facing exile. The surrounding nations, they're still gloating. Nothing has changed. The temple itself is in ruins. Yet the psalmist is hopeful. Anticipating that God will receive praise. Stepping back and thinking about all that, we should recognize that regardless of what we are going through, regardless of our experience, we can respond in a similar fashion. I'd express the lesson this way. We anticipate eternally praising God for his goodness, even as we endure life's great pain. Let me read that again. We anticipate eternally praising God for his goodness, even as we endure life's great pain. At the beginning, I, I said that this was a lament. And I gave you the definition of lament. We think of lament this way. A, a cry of pain, a cry of despair in the agony of life. We, we think of it that way. But I said this is a biblical lament. A biblical lament is more than this. It goes beyond that. The, the way we define biblical lament in my class last at the beginning of this year, is this way. Biblical lament is this. It's, it's a path to praise 
as we are led through our brokenness and disappointment. That's what biblical lament is, a path to praise as we are led through our brokenness and disappointment. Maybe we can simplify the idea this way. Maybe it's just praising God through our tears. Praising God through our tears. Tears don't have to disappear. We can praise God right through those. We praise God through our tears because of that lesson. We anticipate eternally praising God for his goodness even as we endure life's great pain. We know that God is a good God. We know that our God is for us, not against us. We know that even our devastating circumstances are under a control of a good God. Thus, we know that somehow God will turn these circumstances, no matter how painful they are, he will turn them into something that brings praise to him. For that reason, we endure. We endure. We endure with hope. We endure with anticipation. We endure because we anticipate eternally praising God for his goodness, even as we endure life's great pain. As I said, Psalm 79 is not a psalm I would have selected for our Thanksgiving service. But God's ways are certainly not my ways. God providentially placed this psalm on to our Thanksgiving Sunday. And I trust that we've learned something from it. We've learned how to give thanksgiving to our God even when circumstances are dreadfully horrendous. We've learned that we should anticipate praising God even in the times of the greatest devastation and pain in our lives. At the outset, I recognize that, that some of you might have things occurring in your life that makes the idea of sitting through a Thanksgiving service feel impossible. I hope this morning, after you've seen that, that praising God and thanking Him does not mean that, that you have to be without tears and pain that you'll reconsider. Instead of, of erasing the tears and pain, we are to praise God through the tears. Because we are to let the pain of life guide us back to God. Rather than letting the pain of life shake our confidence in God, we are to let it guide us back to Him and praise the God that is in control. You might not feel like there's anything that you can hold on to beyond the fact that Christ has died for you. Maybe that's the only element of hope you have in your life. But that, dear friend, is enough. That is enough. Hold on to that truth. And you know that God is for you regardless of how much pain God allows you to endure in this life. God is for you because you have Christ. As I was working on this sermon yesterday morning, I checked Facebook at one point, and I discovered that the wife of one of my closest childhood friends had died after a very long battle of cancer. She's been battling it for years. And the family wrote on their caring bridge this very short update. Kathy went home peacefully to be with her Lord and Savior this evening at 5.15 p.m. We were rejoicing, crying, worshiping, and laughing together as a family 
knowing that she is finally in the presence of the Lord. That is praising God in the midst of life's great pain. We anticipate eternally praising God for his goodness, even as we endure life's great pain. Father, we thank you for this psalm. It's a hard psalm. It's a psalm filled with pain and agony. And yet it teaches us how to take those emotions and express them to you, how to cry out to you, and to see you in the pain of life. Father, we thank you and praise you that we can thank and praise you even as we endure. Father, I don't know what every person here is going through today, but I do know that whatever they're going through is because you have placed it into their life and you are a good God who has a good purpose, a purpose to develop your children, to train your children, and to bring praise from your children to you. So, Father, we want to give you all the thanksgiving and praise that you deserve as we come to you through the name of our Savior, the one who died for us, that gives us the ultimate reason to have hope, the only reason that we can hope. Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.